0: morning, John chapter 12 is where we begin Passion Week, with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, John chapter 12, and I will be reading beginning in verse 12 down to verse 26, John 12 beginning in verse 12. Uh, You see that they are gaining nothing. Look, the, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Amen, thus far, God's word. Well, if 33 years of instant replay in the NFL have taught us anything, it's this. Just because a lot of people are watching the same game, 50,000 in the stadium, uh, 20 million more on TV, it doesn't mean that they're all seeing the same thing. If they were, there wouldn't be the disagreements about what did or didn't happen on the field. And so that's why in the last Super Bowl, Super Bowl 53, CBS used 115 cameras to not only air the game, but arbitrate the disputes that came up during it. Three of those cameras literally flew through the air. 28 cameras were squeezed into pylons that lined both of the end zones. CBS tech man Ken Agard said, There isn't a square inch on this field that we don't have covered. It's one thing to watch a Super Bowl through a single pair of eyes. It's another thing to have 114 other ones joining you. What does this tell us? Well, it tells us this. The angle at which you watch an event can make all the difference. The first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, provide four different angles from which to view the events of Jesus' life. Uh, Some of those events are covered by only one or two of the writers. Uh, Others are covered by all four. The one at which we're looking this morning, uh, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is one of those events that's covered by all four writers and should therefore lead us to ask, what does John's angle show us that's different than the other three. For instance, concerning this occasion, only from Matthew's angle do we see uh, what happened to Jesus once he was in Jerusalem. Only from Mark's angle do we see in greatest detail what happened to Jesus the day after he entered Jerusalem. Only from Luke's angle do we see the encounter between Jesus and a group of his murderous opponents. And only from John's angle do we see in this morning's encounter, or rather in this morning's account, uh, the encounter between Jesus and a group of curious inquirers. As we will notice, the thing that makes John's angle especially poignant is that this event, which clearly marks uh, not only the climax of Jesus' ministry, uh, but even his human life, also marks the entree to his death. And that poignancy is heightened when one realizes that his death is at odds with the theme of this book, which is life. Chapter 20, verse 31 already expressed throughout the first 12 chapters in a variety of ways. There's the light of life, there's the bread of life, the gift of life, which is eternal life given by Jesus who was the life and came that others might have that life. Now, since this is a climax or the peak of Jesus' ministry, it would be helpful to know what led up to it. Uh, The crescendo, if you will, To the climax, because when these two parts, the the crescendo and the climax, are seen uh, in total, the main point for this morning stands out in stark contrast. So um, buckle in here for a moment, about five pages of background, Uh, then the main point. But the main point this morning is the only point. And once that's stated, we'll, we'll take a few moments to reflect on it for each one of our lives. So... That's the road ahead this morning. The build-up to Jesus' triumphal entry really begins back in uh, John chapter 11 with the story of Lazarus, which uh, simply stated goes like this. Uh, Lazarus, a friend of Jesus, died. Uh, four days later, Jesus called the dead man back to life. The resurrection of Lazarus actually fulfilled the words that were spoken by Jesus back in chapter five, verse 25, where he said, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Lazarus was dead. Jesus spoke to the dead man attesting that he was in fact the son of God. Lazarus, though dead, heard him and walked out of the grave. Well, as you can imagine, news of this event traveled fast and the momentum of it quickly built. And since Jesus would be in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, um, uh, the people planning to attend attend it knew that they could get their eyes on him as well as this one whom he had raised from the dead. So when they arrived or as they arrived, there was this this confluence of crowds, crowds coming into Jerusalem from the countryside, from nearby, crowds coming out of Jerusalem uh, uh, containing those who had already arrived for the Passover. And swirling within this mass of humanity were a variety of forces, such as Jesus' political supporters, uh, Jews who had longed for their capital to be liberated from the Romans, uh, who in chapter six, verse 15, had tried to make Jesus their king, only to have him escape in the process political supporters who, as Jesus approached the city, began to wave palm branches. Palm branches uh, were a symbol of national pride, a symbol of victory, and, and were imprinted on coins commemorating the Jewish revolt of 100 years earlier against the Seleucid Empire and their Greek influences political supporters who, as they came to meet Jesus, continuously cried out the words of Psalm 118, 26, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which were the very same words that they showered on Judas Maccabeus, who led the revolt a 100 years earlier, but to which the present day crowd added, blessed is he who comes, even the king of Israel. So there was the force of political supporters uh, uh, swirling amidst these converging masses. There was also the force of Jesus' political opponents uh, whom he'd been avoiding as early as chapter four uh, who relentlessly persecuted him and attempted to arrest him. We see that in chapters seven and 10 and 11, as well as kill him. We see that in chapters five and seven and eight and 10. Opponents who felt so deeply threatened by Jesus and, and his popularity that they said, if we let him go on like this, then everyone's gonna believe in him and the Romans are gonna come and they're gonna take away both our place and our nation. Chapter 11, verses 47 through 48. So Jesus' opponents begin to incite fear among those who might support him. And they decided to kill Lazarus too, since because of his resurrection, many Jews were believing in Jesus, chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. So it's no wonder that in the midst of this growing excitement over Jesus' arrival, these uh, presumably exasperated uh, and enraged leaders said to one another, look, the world has gone after him. So there there was a clash of of Jesus' supporters and his opponents as he arrived in Jerusalem that was further intensified by the force of the event, the Passover feast. Uh, uh, On the one hand, the size of the event, the sheer size of the event, further uh, energized the situation. The Jerusalem of Jesus' day could hold about 150,000 persons inside of its walls, but according to the first century historian Josephus, uh, the annual Passover feast drew just south of about three million people. So that's a crowd similar in size to uh, the ones who gathered in London to witness Queen Elizabeth's coronation back in 1953, who gathered in Boston for the Red Sox World Series parade, first one in over 80 years back in 2004, uh, who gathered in Rome uh, to witness John Paul II's funeral back in 2005. So it is a, a mass of humanity. So the the size of the event energized things. But on the other hand, Jesus' endorsement of the crowd energized things as well. What do I mean by that? Well, remember in chapter six, verse 15, Jesus had resisted the political overtures of the Jewish people, but here, he's no longer resisting them, but rather accepting them. He's gratefully accepting their Royal acclamation drawn from Psalm 118. He's he's consciously identifying as their king by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, Zechariah 9.9. So the, the, the crescendo that began when Jesus spoke life back into Lazarus has now reached its climax. Wendell Hawley writes, the stage was set for something to happen. It was almost as if revolution was in the air. The city was in a stir. No wonder for the Pharisees that murder seemed the only way to stop Jesus. And all of this leads to the unique angle from which John writes, the one that's different from Matthew and Mark and Luke. Uh, Look at it there with me, beginning in verse 20. We'll just uh, work our way through these verses. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. i just stop there for a second. Notice a couple of things here. First, notice that Gentiles provide the bookends to Jesus' life. In the beginning of his life, he was visited by some Gentile wise man. Here at the end of his life, he is visited by Gentile Greeks. This accentuates a point that's made throughout the scripture and is clearly expressed by Paul in Romans chapter 3 verse 29 is God the god of the Jews only you might pick that up from reading the bible but Paul goes on to say is he not the god of the gentiles also yes of gentiles also which is especially good news i would add for most of us here in this room second notice that the gentiles are attending a jewish event why, why would they be doing that? Well, we really don't know. Um, maybe that references to them as Greek speakers, or maybe they're Greek converts, or maybe Greek travelers. Uh, to that third possibility, it's interesting to note that Greeks uh, were wanderers. In fact, the Greeks were the first people to wander for the sake of wandering. <laughs> and not only that, Greeks were known to be seekers of truth which may shine some light on the next bit that we come to here in verse 21. So these Greeks came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see him. That's a curious ask because um, there's a sense in which anybody could see Jesus. Uh, He was coming to Jerusalem, Uh, You could get on a a hilltop or climb a tree and see him in that way, but it appears as if these, these Greeks want something more. What it is they want, we're not sure, but whatever it is, the tense of their request indicates that it was continuous. They kept asking and asking and asking to see Jesus. So finally, as we see in verse 22, Philip went and told Andrew about the ask And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So how does Jesus respond to this relentless request of the Greeks? Well, by using the occasion of their visit to announce that his mission was accomplished. His mission was accomplished. Take a look at verse 23. The hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. And hence the theme for this week's series of services, glorified. To be sure, Jesus was glorified as he triumphantly entered the city of Jerusalem. Glorified as he deserved. uh, Glorified as uh, we would hope he would be. But the kind of glory to which Jesus refers here and again in 13.1 and again in 16.32 and again in 17.1 concerns an hour about which he's, he's already spoken. In fact, an hour for which he had already given a preview first in principle and then in practice with the raising of Lazarus. It was an hour concerning his life, again, the theme of this book, but life that hinged entirely upon his death. Again, Wendell Hawley, at the height of his popularity and human glory, Jesus clearly predicts his death. Which brings us to this morning's main point. So I'll state it and then we'll hear it from Jesus and then we'll reflect on it for a few moments. And the main point is this. In God's economy, death leads to life. Death leads to life. In our human economy, it's life and then death, right? But in God's economy, it's death that leads to life. Here Jesus who said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it forever. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So in verse 24, Jesus makes this point that life leads to death um, by way of an illustration from the natural world. Uh, the dying grain of wheat was a, a popular idiom in the, in the ancient Near East. Um, seed goes into the ground, right? The outer shell dies, Uh, liberating the the germ of life within and much fruit comes of it. Uh, In America's heartland where we lived for so many years, we saw this principle tested again and again and again. In fact, uh, this time of year, uh, the cycle begins again. Uh, Plant in the springtime, wait through the summer, and then harvest in the fall far more fruit and vegetables than the single seeds that were planted and died. Sealed in a shell, a million roses leap, and resting in my hand, a forest lies asleep. Muriel Stewart. Jesus then points out that what's true in the natural world is also true in the spiritual one as well. So in verse 25, his point that death leads to life is illustrated in that way. Uh, he basically says the one who uh, loves his life in this world is ultimately gonna lose it. But the one who hates his life in this world is ultimately gonna keep it forever Of course, Jesus exemplified this principle by way of his own death and resurrection. Just as a seed dies and yields a harvest of fruit, so one man, Jesus, died and yielded a harvest of souls. How many souls have been harvested from that single seed represented by Christ? But Jesus is also saying here what's true for him is also true for his followers. The the only way to find one's life is to lose it. And so your potential will never be realized by way of selfishness, which is certainly the spirit of our age, isn't it? Rather, your potential is realized by way of selflessness, death to sin, denial of self, Again, self-denial is is a natural principle uh, of success. Uh, Larry Bird is a boy, gets up uh, early and by 6 a.m. is at the gym and he shoots 500 free throws before school. So that when he retires from the NBA as a man, he's made almost 90% of his free throws. Michael Phelps, the swimmer, denied himself over the course of 5 years practicing every single day in the pool on his birthday on christmas on new years on every other holiday 5 straight years of course by the time he retired from the pool he had 23 olympic gold medals so it's a natural principle self denial can lead to self glory though fading but here it's spiritual complement Self-denial can also lead to God's enduring glory. And on this, the Bible is clear. The first shall be last. Uh, Strength is perfected in weakness. Uh, Humility comes uh, uh, or leads to exaltation. The poor are rich. And so a person whose priorities are in keeping with verse 25 and so loves God can Appear to hate the world, causing others to speak against him. First Peter two twelve slander and revile him. First Peter three sixteen and wonder why he doesn't join them in their unrestrained living. First Peter four three through five. Now in verse twenty six, Jesus further elaborates on this point that death leads to life by stating its implications for his followers. he has been speaking to a group, now he's bearing down on each one in that group. But in that way he speaks to each one of us here this morning. If anyone serves me, Jesus says, anyone, he must follow me. And we know that that way leads to and through the cross. This is why to follow Jesus, we must also hear his words. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Matthew 16, 24. For some, that will lead to physical death. Like it did for 18th century missionary to the Native Americans, David Brainerd, or the 19th century missionary to India and Persia, Henry Martin, or 20th century missionaries to China, Betty and John Stamm, or 20th century missionaries to the uh, Warani people in Ecuador, who I believe are probably classmates of Wally Robbins, Jim Elliott, Ed McCauley, Nate Saint, Peter Fleming, Roger Udurian. Wally saw them in life. They all died for the sake of Christ. For others, that will lead to the loss of those close to them. William Carey, a missionary to India, witnessed the death of three of his children and his wife's loss of sanity. Adoniram Judson, who went to Burma over the course of his ministry there, witnessed the death of two of his wives. Still for others, that will lead to a loss of freedom. Like the recently imprisoned Chu Yu Ming, pastor of an evangelical church in China, who just a few days ago, some of you may have uh, seen this, uh, said this concerning his recent appearance in court. He said, the valley of the shadow of death leads to spiritual heights. Or the recently freed Andrew Brunson, the pastor of an evangelical church in Turkey who uh, also last week said concerning his recently completed two years in jail, the Lord was accomplishing more in my imprisonment than in my being free. Or what Christie was telling us this morning about the Woolburns who are ministering the gospel in Asia and yet now Having to deftly position themselves to avoid harm, so that they continue, so that they can continue ministering in Asia. For others, it can lead to the loss of convenience. Uh, the words of of Joy Herman from last Sunday morning are still ringing in my ears concerning the loss of domestic permanence and order. (laughs) I don't like change either. (laughs) But she has sacrificed those things so that she and Jeremy can serve Christ in rural Africa. Like a former colleague of mine, it can lead to the loss of community, which occurred when he moved from the suburbs to plant a church on the south side of Chicago. I can remember in the early days he he would phone me from time to time and just talk. And on one occasion we were talking and I said to him, "Um, hey, I I need to hang up. And he said, don't hang up. I'm so lonely. For others like George Mueller can lead to the loss of comfort. Mueller was asked, what's the secret of your life? To which he replied, there was a day that I died. Died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. Died to the world, its approval or censure. Died to the approval or blame, even of brethren or friends. And by dying to himself, Mueller was then able to care for over 10,000 orphans over the course of his life. And he started 117 schools that provided a Christian education for 120,000 students. Margaret and Ken Taylor are others who followed Jesus at the expense of comfort. The, the Taylors raised 10 children. 10 children in a modest house on a single salesman's salary. And, and as those children were growing up, uh, Ken paraphrased for them the hard to understand uh, parts of the King James Version of the Bible. Uh, he pulled all those together. He called it the Living Bible. He tried to get it published. No one would publish it, so he published it himself. The Living Bible became a bestseller through the early 1970s. It was the best-selling book in America in 1972 and 1973. By its 25th year, the Living Bible had sold 40 million copies, making it one of the best-selling books of all time. Now, the Living Bible's success should have made Ken and Margaret millionaires multiple times over. But it didn't, because Ken and Margaret committed to put all of the proceeds from the Living Bible into a trust by which a 100 other different translations of it were rendered. The Living Bible had such a huge impact on George Bush 43 that he mailed a handwritten invitation to Ken and Margaret to come to his uh, first inauguration. Instead of clearing their calendar, the Taylors wrote back with their regrets, stating that they needed to keep a commitment to speak to a group of collegians for which I was responsible, that were spending a weekend at Dixon Valley Camp. (laughs) Ken and Margaret Taylor, understood what it means to die to the world, its riches and its status. But brothers and sisters, they also understood the reward that accompanies it, a source of which is found there in the balance of verse 26. Where I am, Jesus said, there will my servant be also. It's a good place to be. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. To be sure, death leads to life. So, as we begin Passion Week 2019, I want to encourage you to thoughtfully reflect on the two halves of the passage at which we've looked this morning. The the first half is in verses 12 through 17. It's about glorification that comes by way of exaltation. Uh, That's where we'd like to be. That's where I'd like to be. That's where I'd like to stay. But the second half, verses 18 through 26, is about glorification that comes by way of humiliation. And that happens when we follow Jesus, even to death, which is the only way that leads to life, and that forevermore. Exaltation, humiliation. Charles Ross Weed summed up that choice in a well-traveled poem that he entitled, Jesus and Alexander. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One died in Babylon and one on Calvary. One gained all for self and one himself he gave. One conquered every throne, the other every grave. The one made himself God, the God made himself less. The one lived but to blast, the other but to bless. When died, the Greek forever fell his throne of swords, But Jesus died to live forever, Lord of lords. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. The Greek made all men slaves. The Jew made all men free. One built a throne on blood. The other built on love. The one was born of earth. The other from above. One won all this earth to lose all earth and heaven. The other gave up all that all to him be given. The Greek forever died. The Jew forever lives. He loses all who gets and wins all things who gives. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we love this life more than we care to admit. We do. We do. So this week, as we especially remember your death and resurrection, may we be quick to recall and embrace this truth. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. May we follow you in death so that we may follow you in life, proclaiming that life to a lost and a dying world for as long as we have breath or until you come again. Have mercy on us, Lord, we pray in your name. Amen.